Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. And if you want to bring in more patients, retain them throughout their course of care, and create uniquely impactful patient experiences, then I suggest you check out the ultimate patient experience blueprint over at www.rehabupracticesolutions/upe. That's rehab, the letter U, practice solutions slash U-P-E for ultimate patient experience. All right. This week, we are taking a bit of a break from the world of clinical hands-on skills and knowledge. So normally we have, or typically we have a lot of folks on here that are doing cutting-edge research or implementing uh, new innovative practice areas and practice methodologies or treatment techniques. Today we're taking a step back and we're having a conversation with Paul Wright, who is the founder of Practiceology, and he's a business coach. And the reason I wanted to sit and talk with him, one is because we've done things over the years, him and I together, and I just I think he's got a lot of insight to share, especially folks that find themselves in a position where they're running an organization now trying to manage profitability and productivity and patient care and all of that. So Paul Wright is a physiotherapist from Australia, so um, from the from the other side of the world, so to speak, and uh, he's the former owner of multiple of a multi clinic practice in Australia. Um, he's the author of the Amazon bestseller How to Run a One Minute Practice. He's founder of Practiceology, which is he calls a health business freedom program. And he's helped thousands of allied health business owners across 57 countries earn more, work less, and enjoy their lives. We talk in this uh, conversation here specifically around seven critical mistakes that most small business and small clinic owners make that end up reducing their profits, increasing their workload and their stress, um, and then obviously keep you working more. So I am not a big advocate of one of those like set it and forget it or um, get rich quick schemes, but there there is something to say about running an organization or having your clinic and healthcare organization run in a way that requires minimal input from you as the decision maker, the top tier decision maker, just because you can end up being the bottleneck, right? If they're waiting, if, if your team is waiting on you to make a decision about the marketing or about what we do in this situation, bring it on board a new patient or how we're going to generate referrals here, you've only got so much bandwidth as a person and you don't want to end up being the weak link in your chain. And that's a little bit about what Paul talks about here when, when we have this conversation, specifically around what can the business owner do, what can the clinic owner do to remove themselves enough from the from the day-to-day options or running of the business operations of the business so that they don't become the bottleneck we obviously want to be at least i do i I like being in the clinic i like treating patients i like 
uh, you know, mess talking with the team and, and messing with uh, the marketing here and a, and a process here. But I don't at the same time want to be the reason that something doesn't get done or that a patient doesn't get seen or that something gets overlooked, right? So hopefully you walk away from this episode with some practical insights and some uh, tips and tricks that you can implement in your own clinic or organization um, to begin, maybe if nothing else, uh, improving the quality of care that you're delivering to your patients and your clients. Because again, if things are not getting missed, if you're not the bottleneck, uh, theoretically speaking, you should be able to, to provide a higher standard of care. So without further ado, here's Paul Wright talking about the seven critical mistakes that small clinic and small uh, practice owners make uh, that can <clears throat> that reduce uh, profitability and cause all kinds of stress. So here's Paul. Well, hey, Paul, welcome to the show. How are you? Mate, fantastic. I, I'm, I'm uh, joyed, a joy to be here, mate. After you've been on so many of my programs over the years, <laughs> I thought it was about time I returned the favor. Yeah, yeah. We're excited to have you. So for those that might not know you, just give us like the quick intro to who you are and what you do, and we'll kind of dive into the topic at hand, which are the critical mistakes that are reducing profits and increasing stress in business owners here. Mate, uh, what's my, my story on that? I help health business owners around the world earn more, work less, and enjoy their lives because um, none of us learn that at university. We start our practices, and before you know it, we're, we're drowning in activities and tasks. And uh, so I, I used to run, my, my claim to fame was I, I ran six physiotherapy practices in Australia, and I, I didn't I go to any of them. Uh, I ran them remotely. <laughs> uh, and, and, that, and people just ask me, how? Paul, how did you do it? How do you run the practices and not be there? And that kind of started me mentoring other professionals on how to do it. And but I, but it didn't start that way. It's not, none of it ever does. You just build up uh, your business, start and, and learn things along the way. And that's kind of what today's all about. And um, and then I sold those practices. Um, and there's a lesson for everyone here today: that the only role of your business is eventually to sell it. Uh, yeah. Whether you decide to sell or not is irrelevant. But if you don't sell it, you've bought it. <laughs> and is it worth the price you're paying for it? That's the that's the deal of business these days. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of John Warlow's book, Built to Sell. And he talks about building the business so that you could sell it whenever you want to. Not that you need to go out and sell it after you've done it, but you want to run the operation as something that's going to be creating wealth for you long-term, right? <laughs> yeah, mate, we see it so often and we deal with lots of, we have a program called Practiceology, which is our, our mentor program. But you see clients that, come in and, and the business is so reliant on them, Rafi, that it's really hard to sell that. And you see it now with a lot of corporates coming in, buying practices, but they, if the practice is too reliant on the owner, that, that's not a great purchase proposition because you've, the key thing that people buy, Rafi, and everyone's got to understand this, the key thing people buy is they buy certainty. And, and if you're the owner and you're it, and, and it's, it's pretty uncertain for a buyer to come in. What if you stop? What if you, that clients don't follow when you leave? That, so you've got to have certainty. And I, and I sold my businesses because I wasn't at any of them. They were, and they didn't buy the businesses, Rafi. They bought the lifestyle that those businesses could create for them and, and the certainty that it would continue after, they, after I sold them, which it did. So that's, that's what you've got to be thinking about all the time, the, the, the value of your business as you move out of them. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's dive into the topic at hand here, which is you're calling them the seven critical mistakes that reduce profits, increase stress, 
and uh, and strain your healthcare business. So let's just talk about this first one you've got. You've got failing to understand the true role of your business. And I think we kind of talked about this a little bit here. You bought the thing. So why don't you explain that a little bit? Well, I think that's that comes back to to why we got into business in the first place, Rafi. And and and, and most owners, when you think about it, why did why did we become uh, health professionals? You know, we like in my case, I, I I grew up in a small country town in Australia, about six hours northwest of Sydney, and there were no physios. And I'm a physio by trade, but there were no physios where I lived. And and what did I do? I, I said, well, I'll become a physical education teacher because I love sport, and I didn't know what a physio was. And then. It was only in my final year of phys ed teaching at Newcastle University that I actually met a physio, find out about it and thought, well, that's great, I'll be a physio. But, and then I became a physio, but then you, you evolve into owning a business that does yeah. physiotherapy, which is a different gig altogether. Yeah. <laughs> Before you know it. So, so you've got to think about what, what, what do you want your, the role of your business? And usually it's, it should be, and it, it should be to give you more life. It, it, the role of your business should be to, to add value to your life. Otherwise, it's going to take it from you because you may as well have a job. Like, and I think you would have read, as most great, um, great mentors would have read The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Um, yeah, yeah. And simple read. Like, here's, here's my story. I'm, I'm treating Rafi in my practice in Chatswood in Sydney, my first practice, and there's a road out the front of my, my practice and a bus keeps going past this the, the window. And I'm there in the morning. I'm seeing the sun come up and seeing it go down. The bus keeps going past. On the side of the bus, it says, why most small businesses fail and what to do about it is written on the side of the bus. <laughs> and, and this bus kept going past. And I'm, you know, I'm getting better at the universe now telling me that, that, that I should be watching for these things. But the universe was trying to give me this message. I'm sure it was. And I just ignored it for ages. But finally, I, I, got, I saw the bus and I wrote down the phone number. And it led me to a Michael Gerber seminar, which was the E-Myth. And the E-Myth is a pretty simple read, but it's just you should run your business systematically so it doesn't rely on you because we have what Gerber calls the entrepreneurial seizure where we're, where we're technicians doing the therapy, but then all of a sudden we have this, this seizure that says, I want to run the business that does that. And so as, as you know, we then, we then start running the business, but we're still doing all the technical work as well. Yeah. You wonder why we burn out. So you've got to think about the mistake is the true role of your business. And as I got into Gerber and systemized my businesses, the role of my business was to give me freedom, freedom of time and freedom of money. I, I've got four beautiful daughters and a beautiful wife, and I spend, I spend all my time with them. They're grown up now, the kids. But the, the role of the business was to let me spend time with my family, and that's its job. If I, if I don't think about that and then that's not the role of it, it'll, it'll kill me because it'll, you'll do too many things. And, and one, one way to assess this, Rafi, I'd suggest you guys do that listen to this or watching this, do what I call the freedom score. And the freedom score is work out how many hours per week you are physically at your practice consulting with patients. So what's your, that's the, how many hours per week are you physically at your practice consulting patients? And when we do that, when we do that in our seminars and courses, if an owner says 30, 40, 50, so that's 50, 30, 40, 50 hours a week with patients. And you, you wonder why they're under pressure because they're trying to run the business as well as do that. So our goal is to get our, our owner's freedom score as mine was down to zero. 
if they want it. But otherwise, it's just too big a gig to do consulting plus the business. It's just too hard, too much in it. Yeah, there's too much. There's too much going on. And I've always heard too the the idea that, I mean, you're taking a lot of risk when you when you start a business, right? You're you're on the hook for payroll if you don't, yeah. you know, if you're not running it properly, you're not getting paid. So it's a lot of risk to take on to only basically have a job, right? <laughs> well, I'll tell you the risk. How, how bad's this one? You'd love this. Uh, one of my my first practice, and this is a, this is a lesson for you guys as well. So I had a practice inside a fitness center. So I was a subtenant of a gym, Rafi. It's it's an uncommon, you're subtenant from somewhere. So I was a subtenant of a gym. Uh, I got a phone call Thursday Thursday evening from one of my valued clients. Hey, Paul, we've heard word that the gym uh, hasn't paid their rent for three months. You may may want to check with the owner of the gym. Okay. So so I go into the practice the next day. I know the gym owner really well. And I had my check, my rent check for the month with me. This is the check days. And I walk up and I said, mate, here's my check for the month for, for next month's rent. And he said, uh, mate, just hold on to that for a second. Because I, I, you know, he's a good friend of mine. He wasn't going to rip me off. So he, you know, just hold, and I knew there was trouble. Okay. Hired a truck, canceled the patients for the day, put everything in the truck and moved, moved everything out of the practice. So there I am Friday afternoon, loaded everything in the truck. Everyone is saying to me, Paul, uh, it's going to be okay. The gym's being sold. It'll, someone else will buy it. Um, it'll be open Monday. So when it opens Monday, I'll bring everything back. Don't you worry about it. And this is, this is a $300,000 a year business, Rafi. Yeah. And, and I can tell you, we drove off at five o'clock Friday. We never again set foot inside that building. It, <laughs> it, it shut. Within 12 hours, our business was gone. Now, now, how, now what's the lesson? Uh, don't trust someone else's rent. Don't, don't trust... Yeah. See, what was my lesson? I was running what they call a current bank business. I was running a business that was giving me good money, but it was hard to sell that because I was reliant on the other landlord and it was, and I was reliant on them paying their rent and their business going well. So that was a risk. So I didn't understand that. So the true role of my business, um, to eventually sell it, to make sure I'm not reliant on someone else's mistakes and to give me freedom of time. Otherwise, it's going to suck the life out of me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of takes us to the next one, right? So um, the first mistake was failing to understand the true role of your business. We kind of established that. What about falling in love with your product? Because to me, if you're trying to sell something, right, the, the, the clinician turned business owner thinks that they're doing a, they're providing a great service, right? Why should they not fall in love with their product or their service? Well, I'll tell you in in real blunt terms, Rafi, because the market doesn't care what you want. How's that in, in very Australian direct sort of, yes. sort of language? Um, but because think about how we do it. Why, why did I become a physio? Because I wanted to be a physio. Like I, I liked anatomy. I liked physiology. I liked injury. So that kind of, so I wanted to become a physio. But did I ever think for a second, is there a market for that service? Do people want that service? I didn't really think about it at all. Can I, maybe in the back of my mind, I thought I I could possibly work for myself. So that might've been part of my, my angle, but, and I couldn't do that as a teacher. I didn't think as well, but we, we do it all the time. We fall in love with our product. Um, I'm sure you, you guys have got Shark Tank. You guys watch Shark Tank. Yeah, a lot yeah. Of oh, I love Shark Tank. The, the classic example of Shark Tank, you watch it because you see it over and over again. There was the guy on Shark Tank that was selling um, the underarm pads, Raffi, to so your shirt doesn't get sweaty for, for guys. So you, you've got pads and you stick them under your arm. 
and he went with this product to the sharks. And the, the sharks didn't touch it. They said, oh, no, no, that's going to go. And they asked him and, and during the interview, how many, how many have you sold? Oh, well, I've been doing this for nearly eight years. I've, I think I've sold about 500. <laughs> so, so in this, and so he had no market. So the market didn't want it. They'd come out the back and interview him after the sharks knocked him back. And they said, what are you going to do now? He said, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this because I believe in this. See, he's, he's fallen in love with his product. He fell in love with the armpit thing, which is a mistake because the market has already said they don't want it. What's the lesson for you guys? Fall in love with the market. What does the market want? What? So you might, you might love Rafi treating elbow pain in left arm golfers, like left-handed golfers. They might be your, but if there's not enough of them around, there's not going to be available business opportunity for you. So find something that the community wants. And then your job is to fill that gap. Now, hopefully it'll marry up with your skills and interests. Like, like in my case, I, I love helping health business owners, but that we ran seminars early and we got lots of people to it. So there was a, it was a market demand for that service when we started 10 years ago. So I got fortunate, but don't, if, if no one came to the seminars, Rafi, and no one bought our book, and you'd think, well, the market's telling me it's not a go. So, so don't, don't get caught up loving your, loving your product. Find out what the market wants and then fill that. That's, that's where the opportunity is. But, but we, don't, we don't do that. Uh, we just, I've, I, I've got a passion for migraine. I've got a passion. But is there a need for that in the community? That's what you've got to satisfy. The market determines whether you're a success or not, not what you want to do the market doesn't care what you want to do yeah no exactly no and there's there's a great book i don't know if you've read mike masterson's book ready fire aim yeah he talks about that very same concept right like you get something minimally viable and you kind of yeah. put it out there and then you wait to see what the market says if they say no i don't like that then you have to change you can't just yeah. keep going ahead with it right yeah and that that maybe leads into our third very much into our third mistake for health business owners because we fall victim to perfectionist syndrome. Yes. And, and, that, and that stops us from doing what you just said. It stops us from trying the minimal viable product because we don't want to put anything with our name on it out there if it's not perfect. But that's slow, Rafi. It's too slow to do that. But one of my mentors told me once, Paul, it, it's better to be 100% and out the, sorry, 80% and out the door rather than 100% and in the drawer. Yeah, <laughs> because because we wait. Health professionals are notorious for on oh no, before I publish that article, before I put that video out, before I launch this course, I just want to fine tune it a bit. So they're fine tuning it for years before it ever sees the light of day. And that's I'm not saying you put out rubbish, by the way, um, but you've still it has to be puts, viable, right? <laughs> it's got to be at least at, at least to test the market. Um, I think it was Reid Hoffman from uh, one of the founders of LinkedIn, he said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late. So if, you, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late. Meaning get something out there and see if the market bites, see if there's some interest. And if there is, then you can go with the next version or version three, version four. Um, and, and I think one of my other mentors, I got a lot of mentors, one of my mentors told me, you don't have to be the best in the world. You've just got to be the best in their world. 
Yeah. So you don't, you know, if you've got, think about how we do it, Rafi. Say we've got a, a practice and I want to launch a, a knee program, say uh, run pain, pain-free knee program, how to run pain-free in 10 weeks, whatever it is I decide to call this program. But there's a guy up the road runs it, or a girl up the road who runs a practice who's the the world's who's just the knee specialist, the knee guru. They're just they know knees back to front. They've written the book on it. They're they're knee city. The therapist that wants to put the book this report out will be reluctant to do it because I oh, know they're so good. You know, I can't compete with that. But not everyone knows who that person is. You create your own expertise. You do the book, you do the video, you, you do the seminar, you're the speaker. Um, they might never know who the other person is up the road. So don't worry about it. Um, the best example of that, Rafi, I was lecturing. I did a lot of work in the fitness industry for years. And I used to lecture on anatomy uh, for, the, for the fitness trainers. And one day, my anatomy tutor from university, my guru, does the fitness course and is in the audience. So I'm, I'm the speaker. I'm the guru up the front talking <laughs> anatomy. And in the audience is my, my guru. Yet, and I was totally petrified. Like, I, I'm, I'm just traumatized by this experience. But, but as I went through the presentation, who were, who were the group asking questions of? Who was the guru? I was, because I was at the front of the room. I had the clicker, like, like yeah. I'm the expert. You had the power, yeah. I had the power. <laughs> they didn't know. So, so she might have been the best in the world, this other expert, but I was the best in their world. So yeah. You you, and your clients, you're the best in their world. That's, that's fine. You don't have to be the best in the world. And I love this expression, to, to the blind man, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. And I think that's so, especially when you look at the people that we serve, the physiotherapists generally serve as a whole, we treat people that are in pain, right? Yeah. And I would think, at least this is my view, is that there are more people out there in pain than there are quality clinicians that can treat and help them get better, right? Yep. So even if you're not the best, there's going to be, there's more people out there that need your services than can get them at the neighbor down the street or the competitor down the road. So it's always like, you need to be in that position of building your, you know, awareness of yourself for lack of a better word, because you are going to help some people and you want to, you owe it to those people to put your name out there. So they're coming to you. Right. Yeah. And, and we see that mate, when, um, when we get owners in our programs and they and they're the star, like the owner is the superstar of the practice. Everyone wants to see them. You know, they're just they're the guru, and they have trouble then pulling back because their team aren't as good as them. They they don't want their practice reputation to suffer because they've got a therapist who's not as good as the owner. But but that that perfectionist syndrome is going to kill you. It's going to chain you to your business forever because. Yeah. Because this superstar, you, right? They can't scale you, and <laughs> and I, I put it to our clients. I say to them, "How good has your your other therapist? How good have your other therapists got to be as a percentage of you to let them loose on a client?" And they say, "Oh no, that they've, they've got to be ninety percent as good as me before I'll really let them do stuff." I said, "Well, Lang, you've been training for thirty years. You're, you're you've done every course under the sun. You've got this two year therapist, and you, you're going to wait till they're ninety percent as good as you." Just, I, I think it's got to, it's sometimes it's less than 50%. If they're half as good as you, that's great. If they're 40% as good as you, that's still great. Like, 
because you'll help more people by training them, the, the, the therapist, to be a better version than you will doing all the work yourself. It's just too slow. And you're chained to the business. Yeah, anyway, exactly. that's all part. That's all part of perfectionism. Yes. Well, and then so the next piece. So after perfectionism, you've got kind of the opposite of perfectionism, right? So you've got ineffective, non-existent, or unsupervised systems. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, well, Gerber was big on systems, Rafi, as you know, and and I I then became a systems thinker. So. So my job then, as the once I got my head around what I was trying to do in the business and how I was going to remove myself from it, everything I did, I became the system creator. So my job was no longer treating patients, even though I was treating patients. But every time I did it, I thought, "What's the system in that? How, what's can someone else? How can I show someone else how to do that?" And that's how this whole, like I wrote the book, how to run a one-minute practice, because that's that's all systems based. And an example of that, Rafi, think about. When a patient comes into your practice, what are the things that have to happen um, every time? So you have to get their details, they have to sign an agreement, they have to you get their referral source. Um, you have to, one of the things we love in our, our, client, our, our practices is a written plan of action, like an action plan, a, a care plan. And, that, and that's a simple sheet of paper, Rafi, that every patient has to get. And it's simply a summary. Now, Rafi, here's what we've got today. We found this. Um, to get you back to running, you have to see us twice a week for the next four weeks. This is what we're going to do. And that's a written plan, Rafi. And, and, and as I was doing this, I, I then thought, well, okay, what about, how do I know the therapists are doing this and doing it well if I'm not in the room all the time or if I'm not even in the same city, which was the case for me. So, so I put together a, a, this plan and then I wanted a number on that plan. So let's say it's, they want to see them twice a week for four weeks. So there's eight, that's eight consult plan or you know, once a week for four weeks, that's a four consult plan. So on this register that we created was uh, plan given, yes or no, consults on plan recommended. So once a week for four weeks was four. But then I wanted a column next to that, Rafi, that says how many of those consults did the patient book? Because they might have recommended four, but they didn't book any. Yeah. I might have recommended 10, they booked none. And if I'm not there to see this, I didn't know that. So... This was the whole origin of our new patient register. And that, that became the big training tool. And the tip for systems, Rafi, is remove, the, remove as much as you can discretion at the operating level of your business. So to systemize your practice effectively, remove discretion. What do I mean by that? This written plan in my six practices Every new patient got one of those plans, not negotiable. There, there, was no, there was no way in God's earth that the patient would leave without it. And I'd say to my guys or my team, what's, there's only one, there was one, there's only one time where the patient doesn't get, the new patient doesn't get the written action plan at the end of their consultation. Can anyone think what it is? And they'd say, they'd say, oh, um, they need to go to a surgeon or they're not suitable for therapy. No, none of those things. I said, the only time I would accept a patient not getting an action plan at the end of their consultation is if the patient died during the consultation. <laughs> now, now it always got a laugh and I know you, and it, and it's, it's funny to think about it, but there was a seriousness to my approach, Rafi, because 
So what happened? So I started the new patient register. Yes, they got a plan, but sometimes someone wouldn't get one. And I'd straight away contact the therapist. Hey, Rafi, what happened with Mrs. Jones yesterday? I see she didn't get an action plan. How sad. So what do you mean? Well, she obviously died during the consultation. That's terrible. Oh, no, she's okay. Oh, I just noticed she didn't get a plan. Any reason why she didn't get one? Oh, I ran out of time. I forgot. Well, okay, well, okay, well I'll, I'll let it slide this time, but that's, that can't happen again. But can you see there was a, there was a method to my madness, Rafi? It became non-negotiable. Yeah, and, yeah. and too many owners put a system or a process in, don't track it well enough, and as a result, it falls over in a couple of weeks and it's forgotten. And then you, you, you'll hear it. You'd say to them, do you have a system for following up past patients? Oh, yeah, we ring them every, a month after the discharge. Well, is it still being done? Well, I think it's being done. We, I, I did an in-service on it last month. So you can't let these things slide. You, if you put a system in, you need a system to track it, to measure it, and a consequence if it's not done. And, yeah. and, I, and, and even, even that action plan consult sheet, Rafi, that, that's the best training tool you'll ever have inside your business. Because I'd say to my guys, and we still with our clients, present me the last two action plans with your new patients. Role play it. and Because that, that, that's a critical conversion conversation in business, Rafi. And if you find owners, and you'd love it in your stuff, if, if the therapist is saying to the patient, yeah, well, give me a call in a couple of weeks and we'll see how it's going. See, see, we'll do a few sessions and see what happens. Now, that's just rubbish. And you wonder why the business doesn't go well. It's that consistent, relentless training of that action plan, that conversation that makes the patient feel special, makes them book in, gets great compliance, and they get a great outcome. And, and if your plan is full of things like, in terms of your conversion conversation, if, you're, if your conversion conversation is, um, uh, we'll try a few of these exercises and give it a couple of weeks and we'll see how it goes. Like, do you want your brain surgeon saying yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, we'll poke around in here and we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, you've got to be very specific. Rafi, we're going to do three specific exercises, which I've been using for years with clients just like you to get them back to running no problems. To get you back to that event, you need to see me twice a week for the next two weeks. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And next week, we'll launch this, this, and this. We'll get you back there, no problems. How's that sound? That's, that's a trained conversation. And, and a new grad can deliver that conversation. You don't have to be a 20-year veteran to do that well. Yeah, so that, exactly. But that's an example of the system. And there's a thousand of them. But, but remove the number of, of, of discretionary points. Don't launch something if you can't track it. And there's a consequence if they don't do it. Otherwise, you'll chain yourself to your business forever. Yeah. How's that? That is. <laughs> so I get passionate about that stuff. I'm passionate about systems. No, I like it. And it, you talk about tracking the data and doing all that. And your next point is taking more of an ownership <laughs> of tracking, right? So not your, your critical mistake here is using your accountant to tell you the business's profit and loss. So explain a little bit about that then. Okay. Well, I'm a big... I'm, by the way, I love accountants, by the way. And you've got to have an accountant. You've got to have a good one. But, but their job, if you think about their brief, what's the job of your accountant? Uh, reduce your tax and probably keep you out of jail. Like that, that's their brief, <laughs> really. Like that's what do you want your accountant to do, really. Um, but that doesn't necessarily help me run my business or know the numbers of the business. Um, you, you see it all the time, Rafi, with people selling practices. They've got personal expenses mixed in with their yeah. business expenses and you've got you know that 
the the conference you went you went to in in Botswana that your accountant but you had a two week holiday in yeah you know, so but that's all part because your accountant can legally get away with it and that's okay but that the problem with that analysis Rafi doesn't give you a down and dirty PL of your business so you've got to find we actually run a parallel PL. We've got our, our accountant version, and then we've got our one-minute practice version, our practiceology version, which is a down and dirty. Everything that's personal is out of it. The car's not in it, unless you're doing mobile work. That it's down and dirty. And, and the big thing that's different in that PL that we do with our clients is what we call owner consulting wage. Now think about what, what does your accountant suggest you draw as a wage or a dividend out of your business? That's usually made, Rafi, on an accounting decision. It's, yeah. it's, it's the decision made to reduce your tax. What's the best tax structure for me to, to get money out of the business? So your owner, but that doesn't reflect how many hours you're consulting in the business. That's a tax decision. So what I want, and, and we've kind of covered a little bit, is an, a, a down and dirty way to do it that is, that is an off, off the accountancy books version is look at your freedom score so on a calendar month, how many hours do you see patients for in the practice as a consulting therapist? So your freedom score. Multiply that by your replacement cost. So what's the hourly rate it would cost to replace you as a therapist? Now, that's, I'm not saying you take that money and that's not what you, what you take out of your business and live on, but that's for our analysis, that's a reflection of your consulting time. Because what I want to see, Raf, at the end of the day, and, and how this came about, it's really hard to convince therapists to drop consulting hours, owners of businesses, because they think that straight away affects their bottom line. They're, if I don't see so many patients, I'm not profitable. But that's only because they haven't got a good analysis of their P&L. See, what, what we try and do using this system is you work out your down and dirty profit loss and putting your owner consulting wage in. And over time, we, as we gradually stop you consulting, we show you you're still making as much money, if not more, than when you were doing 50, 60 hours a week consulting. But it's the only way you can convince a therapist or an owner to stop consulting because they follow the, the dental philosophy, which is if you're not drilling, you're not yeah. doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've heard it. That's, but it's not the case. In, in the majority of cases, Rafi, if you're doing 40 plus hours a week with patients, you know as well as I do, you're not mentoring your guys well, you're not recruiting well, you're not fixing the systems, you're not marketing, you're not, you're not you know, all these other things. It just doesn't make any sense. You've, you've got to start dropping your consulting time to free up the business development things that are long-term things for the business, make it more sellable and make it more profitable, but doing that while maintaining your, your P&L. Yeah. And your accountant's data doesn't do it for you. No, no disrespect to accountants, but it's not their job. Yeah, it's just not what they're looking for, right? <clears throat> I had an accountant. I had a, I had a great accountant for 20 plus years. He's never given me a down and dirty profit and loss when I had my practices. That was, that was up to me. And he, and he certainly never gave me one on a clinic by clinic basis. So if you've got more than one location, you've got to be all over this because you'll probably find there's, there's a clinic that's going really well and one that's a, a dog and they'll balance out but you've got to know them individually um, because sometimes you're running practices and overall it might be going okay, but you've got two that are just wasting your time. Yeah. You the, if the, the whole idea of islands sell. of profit in a sea of red ink, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we made more money. We had six. We, we eventually made more money out of three than we made out of six. 
yeah. despite by consolidating and tightening up our expenses. And you know, but but we, without the data, we wouldn't have known that. We'd have thought our oh, business is going okay. Yeah, it's all pooled in, and the accountants often got it pooled in. Well, and it's that whole idea too of working on the business rather than working in the business. You're trying to pull the owner out of being the one grinding every day as opposed to yeah. the person setting the vision and, and all that kind of thing. And Which it, kind and of leads natural. into that next point, right? Like part of that pulling out of doing the day-to-day -day treatment is recruiting, training, mentoring staff. And you mentioned it, like if you're treating 40 hours a week, you're not doing any of that, right? You just and, and, and we've learned certainly over the last couple of years. And when we did a whole program on recruitment, because it's such a big topic these days and retention, yeah. You know, it, it's so hot because that determines really, Rafi, how well you can pull yourself out of the business. And if you're, if you're making you, you, you the focus, if, you're the, if everything's about you, gee, it's hard to replace yourself if that's the case. So because so so, really there are two key drivers of any business, and this is fundamental. There's available market. So is there enough of, of a demand for your service to make it viable? So that's the first thing. The second thing, is there available labour to supply that service? So available market and available labour. Now, you might think, well, and this is how some people get it wrong. Let's say you open a practice in a rural town. Now, there might be plenty of market for it, Rafi, because there's, 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 no, there's no therapists out there. So there's a great market base. But then you've got to try and convince therapists to come out there yeah, to work. So work there's, there, yeah. And then you wonder why you, that, that person's stuck in the business for 20 plus years because they can't get started. So you, you've, got to, you've got to understand available market, available labour. And, and I think that the key, though, to this is to, in terms of your recruitment and your retention strategies, as an owner of a business, there's a, there's a critical decision you have to make. And, and I've seen so many business owners fail because they haven't made it early enough. You have to ask yourself, do you want to be liked or do you want to be respected? So as the owner of the business, do you want to be liked or do you want to be respected? Because sometimes it's really hard to be both as a business owner. And, and the owners I see struggle, I'm sure you've seen it a thousand times, the owner that doesn't want to have the difficult conversation, the owner that's concerned if they don't enforce their protocol. You know, they feel like if they don't do it, the person won't like them and maybe they'll leave. So they're, un, they're always under threat of the person leaving. That, that's the bad way to run your business. Um, and I, I, I do, one of my favourite presentations I do is I say to, and I get in front of team members, and I, I'm speaking on behalf of the owner. And I'll say, look, my job as an owner of business is to make you replaceable. <laughs> that's <laughs> my job. And, and I can say it because the, I'm not the owner of the business. So I'm, I'm a paid gun to come in and say this. My job is to make you replaceable. Your job is to make yourself irreplaceable. Let's see where that gets us. Because I can't be too reliant on any one person in my business. Otherwise, it's a liability for me. So you've got to be continually recruiting, systemizing, making sure it's not one person dependent because that's, that's a nightmare. And the biggest mistake I made, or one of my big things, I made a thousand of them, that I, sat, I, I had a senior practice manager who knew everything about the business traffic. You probably know the one. She was the superstar. Oh, yeah. And I, and I remember getting, sitting in bed one night. I don't know what came to me, but I, I remember sitting bolt upright. My God, if something happens to Gina... I'm in all sorts of trouble. Yeah. It just, it just, it hit, it hit me like a lightning bolt. So I contact Gina. So Gina, you're not doing anything tomorrow other than you're in the back room with me. I've got the camera, and this is in the old days of the handy cam. So I've got yeah, the handy yeah. cam here. 
and I'm and I'm saying, show me how you do this. And I'm videoing her and the camera and we'd stop the camera. Okay, what else to do? Show me how you do payroll. Bang. And, and we spent all day, show me how you do this. And we just had this huge mass of, of short videos. So at least if anything happened to Gina, I had some something to fall back on. But see, that's a dangerous. So what's why you've always got to be recruiting, training, systemizing, because you don't want to be too reliant on any one person. Always be hiring, Rappi. Even if you haven't got a spot available, always be hiring. As, as Jim Collins says in Good to Great, first who, then what is a fundamental principle. First, meaning, meaning a great person approaches you and you might not have a job, but the great people will create a job for themselves. It's the who. They will find yeah. something for them to do. I, we, we learned that in our businesses. I, I'm, I'm interviewing occasionally for therapists. And then one day this acupuncturist approached me. Uh, didn't have an acupuncture position, didn't have an acupuncture department, but he interviewed so well, we started an acupuncture massage department because it was, it was who? And he was with us for six years and made us a fortune. Yeah. I wasn't looking for him. Uh, I wasn't looking for an acupuncturist, but it presented itself. So always be hiring, Rafi, always. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and then the very last of your seven critical mistakes here is not packaging your services. All right. Uh, I'm assuming yeah. you're talking private practice cash pay clients here, right? Yeah, in most cases, yeah. But but we we've packaged insurance programs quite easily as well. Like we we packaged a a 12 week uh, gym based rehab program for long term workers compensation problems, paid for by insurance companies. All right. As a, as a package, you can package anything. Um, it's if you solve a desperate problem for the person that you're helping. So so packaging means. Too many of us just do therapy. So you come to XYZ Healthcare and we'll do three sessions a week for six weeks, whatever we do. That's, a, that's, a, that's our service. But I can get that anywhere. But if I've got the XYZ migraine program or the run a, run a pain-free marathon program, I name my program as an outcome base and then I do exactly what I'm normally doing, but I just put it as part of a package. The payment doesn't have to change. It can still be paid exactly the same, but the person then is part of a program, not a session by session deal. And what that does, Rafi, the big killer here, it removes therapist dependence. So oh, you're, on, you're on week four. We had, we had the better back program. We had the core program. So we're different programs. Oh, you're in week four. No problems. Let's get started. See, the program becomes the star, Rafi, not the therapist. And... And the other thing, price becomes insignificant then because I'm the only person with the XYZ migraine program. The guy up the road, he might be the or she might be the migraine expert, but they, they haven't got the migraine program. I've got it. I can charge whatever I like for it because you can't compare the price of this to something else. Like, look, look at our program, Practiceology. That's the science of running a successful allied health business that works without you. Practiceology. That's the program. There's a median health business coaches, but they haven't got practiceology. So it's, it's, it's the branding of your service of what you deliver. That's the star. Then you've got the chance to replicate it, get other people to do it. And, and it, it's just a no-brainer. You've got to start packaging what you're doing. Because most of us, Rafi, do it anyway. We're, we've already got a program. You've already got your own version of the knee program, the back program, the shoulder program. Just package it, name it. 
and run it exactly the same. But, oh, you're part of the shoulder program or the pain-free baseball shoulder, whatever it is. That's, yeah, yeah. Then you can't, then you, you, you're really branding yourself in the, in the marketplace and it's hard to compete with you on price and anything else because you're the only person that's got it. But Rafi, that comes back to one of our original problems. Health professionals are worried about doing that because they are perfectionists. They think, well, it's not, it's not ready yet or it's not the perfect program. Guys, you're already doing it. Yeah. <laughs> just, just call it something. Ted, Ted Jednick, one of my good mates, did a program, FMT, manual therapy for feet. So he's a podiatrist in Australia. He runs a whole foot, foot mobilisation therapy for feet program. And he ran it and he's teaching it around the world. It's, it's manual therapy for feet. And, it's, and you come into one of the FMT clinics and you get manual therapy. You move to the next table. This happens, this happens. And then you come out. It's, it's a sausage factory of manual therapy for feet. But it doesn't matter who you see. That They don't care who the therapist is. You're on week three, week four, week five, and you just come in. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer. Why aren't we doing that, Rafi? Yeah. <laughs> Part of, I'm sure part of it is the, the idea of like individualizing treatment programs and all that, but I'm, I am a big fan of coming up with a framework and saying like, this is your, you know, this is what falls under the, the shoulder treating framework or whatever you want to call it. And then, yeah, you grade it up, grade it down as the client's able to, you throw this in, throw this out, you know, basically tailoring it to meet the client where they're at, but you're still working from a framework, right? Yeah, but, but Rafi, that, this comes back to our analytical brain as health professionals and the individual nature of each condition. But if you look at your week or your month, you know, you're doing a lot of the same things over and over again. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you are. Uh, you, there's a framework you're working in. And, and, and one of the expressions, I'm a, I'm a fan of expressions, write this one down. If you're going to succeed in business, you systemize the routine and humanize the exception. Yes. Systemize the routine, humanize the exception. There's always going to be exceptions. And that's, that's an opportunity. Well, you're not quite fitting in here, Mrs. Johnson. We need to follow a different path here. But that's a small percentage of the typical patient coming into your practice. So system, what is happening routinely in the practice? That's the system. I'm telling you it is. You know, it's, it's, it's just observing it differently and then humanize the exception. And and I think it's part of our university training, Rafi. We get so caught up in, in the detail or the, or the anatomy, the physiology, but we don't appreciate the person and what's the best for them. And yes, everyone's different, but as you said, there's a framework that you can operate this thing around that'll be very successful if you do it. You're doing it now. Otherwise, you're relying on... High, and, and the other thing you're relying on is highly trained therapists to deliver that very personal, individual thing. Um, and I, I don't necessarily like this expression, but I'll tell it to you. You leverage ordinary people with great systems. Leverage ordinary people with great systems. I can make a new grad sound like a superstar during just by a couple of action plan training sessions. You get the words right, get that conversation right. They can sound better than a 20-year veteran. You can fix that in a couple of hours. Yeah. Get the words right. Yeah, that, that's, that's the way to do it. Yeah, you know, I hope that was hope that was useful. <laughs> yeah, no, very much so. Thank you. All righty. Well, we're getting near the top of the hour here. Um, I always ask this of folks: if you could give your the listeners like one or two main points that they'd walk away um, with from the episode, what would they be? 
Well, let me give you something different. I, I love a, a, the the fundamental principle of this. What I what I preach is letting the business work for you. That's kind of the kind of the systemized to do it. And a, a mistake that isn't in our list, but is a bonus mistake I sometimes put in. Never, ever, never ever put a monetary value on your family time. Never put a monetary value on your family time. What do I mean by that? You might have a patient list that is you know, 10 patients on a Wednesday afternoon and you'll make $2,000. You'll say, well, Wednesday afternoon is worth $2,000 for me. I can do that or I can go and watch my daughter's netball practice or my daughter's sports kind of, or my son's something. The problem that health that we make, we have in business is we, we think about that analysis. Do I want to make the two grand or do I want to go and see my daughter's school play? It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, Rafi. It, it, it's, just, it's just stupid. So just stop, stop that for a start and never, <laughs> never do. It's just ridiculous. Um, I, one of my, my mates, a really good mate of mine, probably one of the best sports physicians in Australia, like a really superstar sports doctor. Every year, Rafi, we get together and, and other guys get together and do something. You now we get together and do something. So one year we were going uh, quad bike racing. It's <laughs> like craziness, but this is what we're doing. <laughs> and I contact my mate and I said, mate, we're meeting at five o'clock. He said, oh, mate, I can't make it. I've got this thing. I've got this patience. I've got... I said, mate, you're kidding, aren't you? What do you and I say to him, what are you going to remember? Are you going to, re in 10 years' time, are you going to remember that patient list? Or, or, and he ended up coming, by the way, he came, he, he, I guilted him into it and he came. Or are you going to remember seeing Wayne disappear over the handlebars of his quad bike into the river? <laughs> see, see, what do we talk about? Do we talk about the patients or do we talk about Wayne going over the handlebars into the river? He's fine, by the way. He, he's out of hospital now, but he's okay. But, but the, the point is you can't put a monetary value on that stuff. And it's ridiculous to do it. So the job of your business give you more life so you don't miss anything. And if your business is taking it, you're, you've got to fix your business because it's not the role of the business. Its job is to give you more life, give you more freedom and let you do what you want to do. That's the role of a business. I'm Paul right. Wright. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Well, where can people find you, find more about uh, practiceology and all of that good stuff? Uh, we do a monthly webinar. Uh, we do a monthly demonstration of practiceology. So we show you how it works and everything else. Um, and I've got a link for Rafi. Just go to mypracticeology.com forward slash Salazar. So mypracticeology.com forward slash Salazar. You can find out when the next session is on. Uh, if you want to check out some other resources, we've got a Paul's Incredible Gift. Uh, you can get a copy of my book, How to Run a One Minute Practice, plus 500 something dollars worth of resources for less than 20 bucks. Go to paulsincrediblegift.com. And if you just want to get a copy of the book, if you just want to get a read through, simple read, won't take you long to do it. Um, go to oneminutepractice.com forward slash book sales. Um, you can find the book there and just use the code uh, Salazar OS, S-A-L-A-Z-A-R-O-S, meaning overseas. That's because that's for internationals so non-Australians. If you're not in Australia, use that code and you get it for five bucks. And we post it out for you. And find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old school LinkedIner, Rafi, so that's where you find me. But the webinar, paulsincrediblegift.com or jump on oneminutepractice.com forward slash book sales and have a read. All righty. Well, thanks so much, Paul. Have a great one. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks, uh, right. thanks for having me on. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Paul Wright talking about the seven big mistakes 
particularly that small practice owners or that independent clinicians and practice administrators make that reduce profits, increase stress, and all the other headaches that we talked about. Um, I think listening back to this and over this conversation, the big takeaway for me anyways, and I, I don't think this is anything novel or new or groundbreaking, is just the the importance of putting systems in place and then holding staff accountable to those systems. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm recovering from... Uh, well, from something that causes congestion and a fever. So <laughs> if I sound like I'm, I'm gurgling here, that's probably what it is. Um, I think especially as a, as a small business owner myself, a clinic owner, it's very easy when you're the, the bottleneck or the one in charge <laughs> um, to put a system in place and assume that it's being done, right? Never look back again and never check again. One of the things we do at the clinic that I run is I've run like a monthly audit of certain systems that I've put in place, ones that are important to me. Uh, one of the big ones is um, the the patient or the new client intake process. You know, how are we handling first calls at the front desk or inquiry calls via the, the website or phone call into the office? How are we using that? clients or how are we uh, taking and documenting that client's narrative or experiential perspective of their pain and then how is that being communicated to the treating clinician when this client or patient comes into the clinic for their initial evaluation or their consultation or whatever it is that's one of the big ones for me and it was one of those processes that I put in place and thought that okay I've I've done a an in-service and I'm good to go here and it wasn't until I started running an, an audit every, you know, I run it maybe four to six weeks. I'll look through the last several uh, sheets that we put together about it and just take a look in a gander and see, oh, you know, we're missing this important piece of information that might not be necessary from a billing standpoint, from a, like from an administrative standpoint, but it's hugely important from a patient engagement and relationship building standpoint. So I'll like hit that again, like guys, we need to be, you know, focusing on X, Y, Z, to make sure that we're, you know, delivering the the quality of care and the experience that we want to deliver here at the clinic. And then that just gets extrapolated, right? Like if there's 15 processes that you're putting in place and you're not checking in on any of them, it's only a matter of time till the wheels come off the bus. <laughs> and I love Paul's example about calling the uh, calling the clinician and saying, "I noticed you didn't give that patient an action plan. Did they did they die during the the treatment, which is, <clears throat> you know, which might be a very, you know, outlandish or way out of left field or extreme example or kind of sarcastic too. <laughs> but it gets the point across, right? Like the, these systems are in place for a reason and we need to hold everybody accountable to it. There's, there's no exception. So hopefully you walked away from the episode today with some, some practical strategies that you can implement in your practice to improve the efficiency but also, at the end of the day, it's about providing the highest quality care, really at the lowest cost, right? Like we, we live in a world where medical costs are skyrocketing, and it is, you know, my way of looking at providing services or about systematizing any kind of clinic or business really should be about providing more value to the, to the end user, to the client, and that's our, the patients that are walking in, in the clinic every day. So if that means we're, we're implementing a, a, 
a system or a process is going to cut time off the administrative time off. That's we're hopefully going to be a savings that we're able to pass on to the consumer. The same thing with treatment plans in particular. I don't like having open-ended anything with clients and I'm, I'm very big about it here at the clinic that I run and with the clients that I work with. Like there's no reason that a, a client should come in or a patient should come in and get evaluated, told what's wrong with them or what we think the problem might be and how we're going to fix it and just leaving that plan of care open-ended. Oh, we're going to see you two times a week and we'll kind of go from there. No, we want to be very specific because again, this is there's a financial cost associated with delivering the, the care that we provide, right? And clients and patients need to be aware of that up front so they can budget for it, so they can prioritize, so they can plan accordingly. Now, some of that has you know, come into play now, especially in the U.S. with the, the No Surprises Act and, and the requirements for good faith estimate and, and this, that, and the other, and that's kind of getting in there. But the reality is we should have been doing that before. We, sh- we shouldn't be compelled to do it by, by federal mandate um, because it's, just, it's not going to be effective. I think if we truly care about providing quality and valuable care to our clients and our patients, cost is one of those discussions we need to have at the beginning, at the outset, so that, again, a client and a, and a patient can plan for this is how much I need to budget in order to complete this course of care and in, in order to you know overcome xyz whatever pain it is whatever limitation it is we have a responsibility to our clients to to inform them about that so that's my little soapbox on cost that's all we've got this week folks if you like the show head on over to itunes leave us a rating and review um, if you want to be kept in the loop uh, you can head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show or rehabupracticesolutions.com. Click the tab for podcasts. You can find all the past episodes. You can sign up to get notified when we release new episodes. We drop them every other um, every other Wednesday. Sometimes we'll do a bonus episode on the off weeks. And if you run a uh, independent uh, practice of some kind of uh, where you're hopefully seeing patients and delivering the highest quality of care possible, and you want to attract, uh, acquire, attain, uh, engage, and retain more patients, um, head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com and learn about how we might be able to help you out. Until the next time, folks, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to The Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.